All right, everyone out there who's stock rich and cash poor, what if you could generate liquidity from your private company shares without giving away the upside? Well, Shares Post is now offering loans against private company shares and loans to exercise stock options. Shares Post Lending, the new liquidity solution. Visit sharespost.com. Coming up on Equity, SoftBank invests a ton of money in a dog walking app. There are a bunch of executive changes at Airbnb, and it turns out talking to Amazon's Magic Cylinder is a real business. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Matthew Lindley, and I'm here with uh, former TechCruncher slash all-around fine human, I guess, Alex Wilhelm. Emphasis on the I guess, but I'll take the rest of that. And uh, Steve Herod, who's a partner with General Catalyst. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hey! So we've got uh, some news happening, which we will actually kick that to the back of the show because SoftBank's mega fund invested money in a dog walking app, which apparently is a business. So, so how much money are we talking about here? Because money is, you know, relative. Well, this is SoftBank money. So if, if I had to just, I mean, we've seen the number, but if you had to like blindly guess a number from SoftBank for a dog walking app, how much money would, do you think they'd put into it? I mean, I would have said 100. Okay. I think I would have said 100 million if I had to just kind of like blindfold just straight guess, yeah. Okay, well, spoiler, it was well over $100 million. It was $300 million from SoftBank's Vision Fund, which, as usual, SoftBank uh, kind of alters the uh, the entire landscape for numbers in general. Anyway, so we have a wag early WAG investor here with us. So can you please explain to us why all this money went into a dog walking app? Yeah, I know. It's one of those things, at first blush, you kind of wonder, like, what's the world become? But um, if you actually think about it, this one makes a lot more sense than a lot of other areas. We were happy to be one of the early investors in it. And uh, if you think for a minute about dog walking and dogs in general, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Dogs are they're actually numerous. There are more of them than there are kids. Uh, people love them at least as much as their kids, as you can see. Actually, I was laughing on my way over here today. I was walking through one of the parks in San Francisco, and there was a guy with no shirt on wearing a uh, baby Bjorn with his dog in it. <laughs> Which is not the approved use of that according to the warranty. I checked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is this is why this is a podcast, not a video look at this either. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of dogs. People absolutely love them. And especially these days, you know, everyone's busy and working, and they want to know that their dog is being taken care of. So they love the idea of trusted people coming in and giving a, giving a Fifi a little walk and, and helping them be happy. And what's more, the beautiful thing about this business is that dogs just keep needing to go to the bathroom, as anyone who has one knows. And so it's a business that just people keep using over and over and over. So I, I think uh, I think it has a chance to be a, a worldwide phenomena for sure. And I think you start with dog walks and it can go to boarding and to grooming and all sorts of other things so from there. I, well, I want to double click on that worldwide point because I get why putting more money into WAG in the domestic market makes sense because I can see where the capital would go to use. I can kind of, I can grok that. But when you say worldwide, you're presuming that a big chunk of the $300 million will be used for international expansion. And that will demand a lot of localization. A lot of these sorts of things need to have very specific um, instances for certain markets because the dog market won't be the same in Japan as is the U.S. Yeah, because I want to drill down on that. Because so I was I just got back from a big trip out in Asia and like several companies and companies countries in Southeast Asia, and. In San Francisco, there are dogs freaking everywhere. And in a lot of those countries that we went to, you don't see dogs everywhere, right? Like you don't see a ton of dog walking. So I, I'm just wondering if, if you're talking about international expansion, you mentioned localization, right? Like it, how do you kind of reconcile this idea that, I mean, obviously we live in the San Francisco bubble where there are dogs just freaking everywhere, right? And you, if you went abroad, like maybe that's maybe it's just not even a a thing to kind of casually walk your dog and you just take him out and just let him go to the bathroom and come straight back in, right? 
Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, it's definitely the case where you have different regulations and different norms and probably even different pet types. <laughs> Dogs aren't the, the uh, pet of choice everywhere. But it is the fact also that uh, when you take something that is a general a general need for a, a subset of all the countries out there, then this is one of the opportunities that SoftBank often pitches, which is we can take your your U.S. and maybe sometimes European-centric business and apply it to the right countries that might exist uh, and have something similar. And then they always invest in things that they believe can be, uh, you know, our famous Silicon Valley word of a platform, meaning uh, you <laughs> might start with dog walking, but when you have this intimate relationship with the dog or the owner, in this case, uh, there's a chance to offer other services around it. So they, they really like those things that um, can also consume money by growing both geographically as well as by the number of services. And expand the lizards. <laughs> so then that, that kind of raises a slightly different question, which is I get all of that for a $100 million round. Like that that overall narrative makes sense to me for that size check. But this, I think, was a $300 million at a 650 valuation. So it was, they bought a huge stake of the company, which could theoretically limit later on investment if people don't want to come in at that valuation. So I'm, is it kind of their one shot to get this international work done? Or does the company still have a lot of... You know, later future flexibility for financing. I, I don't know what a $300 million check means to a company that had raised 60 before. Like th- That just feels so surreal to me in terms of scale. I don't know it, how it bears out in three or four years. Yeah, certainly it, it can be both a blessing and a curse if you're not doing it right. Um, you, you often succeed as a startup because you really focus on the most important thing and, and you get it really, really uh, done right. Whereas if you can do everything at once, then you sometimes get sloppy. So I think that's one of the balances. On the flip side, when it's one of these giant businesses that or giant potential businesses that SoftBank goes after, yeah, they want to actually make sure that no one else can really come and outspend them for sure. And so if there are multiple services around the world trying to be your uh, your dog or your pet walker or your interface with them, then it's it's certainly nice to be able to expand ahead of them and to make sure that you can win the bigger prize by being capitalized that much. I feel like that was that's like the OG SoftBank move, like when they made that play for Supercell back in the day, right? The Clash of Clans guys, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, but I mean, also... With SoftBank investing all this money into WAG or even Uber or things like that, right? Uh, I have to wonder, you know, this is a massive equity funding round, but uh, is this also an opportunity where, you know, SoftBank is like this like blessing of liquidity for early employees and founders and things like that, whereas, you know, the, the only original route was to go public or to like sell your company or something like that. And all of a sudden SoftBank comes in and says like, hey, we'll give you you know, for Uber, whatever it was, like tens of billions of dollars for a stake in your company, and we'll, you know, we'll let you guys finally cash out, right? Does like change? Does that change the landscape? Even if I mean, I know we're talking about a dog walking app of all things, but like, you know, do situations like this kind of alter the landscape of of VC though, right? Because we feel like we see these deals happening increasingly, and like that's you know that's a factor of like not only like yeah they're really big deals but like also wow like people are taking these deals right well i mean this deal didn't have much secondary right that's the weird thing about this deal if i recall the media correctly there wasn't a whole bunch of liquidity provided in the transaction so it isn't like you know gc got bought out here or freestyle or sherpa or battery but liquidity is liquidity right uh well only if it impacts your shares right i mean liquidity event but we're talking about early employees though like early employees and founders and things like that right yeah, I think the way to think about it, I can guarantee you that every uh, fund right now that is either early stage or later stage is, is having an offsite where they say, what are we supposed to do about SoftBank? <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's always a positive and a challenge uh, for almost everybody. So I think to your point, it is a, especially when you're an early stage investor, any possible new way of getting uh, liquidity is something everyone wants to, to hear about. And yeah, there is the rise of the PE firms, like uh, you know, great firms like Vista and Toma Brava that could find one way of buying out companies. 
Um, IPOs you all always talk about, you know, that is one path that's not always that easy. And this is definitely a new path where either an employee or a venture capital firm that was in early has at least a chance to uh, sell some of their early shares. And the goal from a from a SoftBank perspective, or you know, you'll hear about Sequoia's new big fund as they've been talking about, and other things. These are ways that they are really just trying to buy a, a majority or a big part of a of a company, and they'll get the shares almost wherever they can. So I think there are ways for sure that this can be mutually beneficial, but it, no matter what, it has an effect on things. And when you do raise $300 million, you're not likely out to raise another round from other investors in the immediate <laughs> near term. So this is kind of like your last, the last round that you need to raise. Well, I mean, hopefully, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you need more than $360 million, whatever they've raised now, I think probably made a small mistake. But speaking more, more broadly, there was a point, I forget who said this, so I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but it said, startups don't die of starvation very often. They often die of indigestion. And so when I, when I hear about these rounds, this is, you know, about 5x what they'd raised in aggregate previous to the 300 million. I, I really hope they have the operators needed on staff to not make a mistake. Because if you gave me $300 million, I would probably screw it up. I mean, flat out. I, I would probably expand too quickly, or the wrong markets, or whatever. Or I would go do, to China, or wh- whatever it is. I feel like that would open up so many avenues and pathways that I, that weren't in my option set before. That I would be very, very tempted to make a, a, a poor choice on accident. Like I'm, it, it would probably happen. Focus matters, but I will tell you, there, there's only one reason that a company ever goes out of business, and that's when they run out of money. Cash is business oxygen. I tried to slip in an Uber burn, but it didn't work there. So <laughs> I didn't even notice. Anyways, so speaking of companies not raising money, or at least we think. Um, so we have uh, our our a, a startup that uh, you know probably everyone has used at this point, but is never or seemingly never in the conversation of like, oh, like when are they going public? Like Uber or Dropbox, which you know is like I feel like you hear one of these stories like every single day is Airbnb. I've heard of it. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, it's a it's a company, right? Um, but we uh, we had uh, a big uh, dust up today with several executive, a lot of executive movement, in particular, uh, Airbnb CFO is uh, leaving the company, and uh, there's uh, there were a lot of reports out there that there were some tensions brewing between uh, Brian Chesky and and Lawrence, and you know, it, I feel like. Airbnb is one of those companies that's just gotten so ridiculously big and seems like actually like a reasonably like um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> not not run by clowns. Um, oh, so you're the non-Travis effect. Yeah, is what you're uh, saying. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, okay. so um, it's surprising. It's it's almost a little bit surprising to me that it w- that it took this long for us to see like this a very big like aha growing pain story, right? Because I feel like this is you you would catch onto something like this way way earlier. In a company's lifetime, and it basically it took it to the point where, you know, these guys had to come out and say like, ah, now we're not going public next year, so or well, this year rather. I, I think the maturity point or the lack of growing pains point makes a lot of sense. I mean, Dropbox famously had to put a plaque on its uh, Chrome Panda saying, you know, guys, we're gonna rein this in a little bit now. I haven't heard that from Airbnb, and really the only thing I've heard over the last year and a half is that they're very, very healthy. And as part of their announcement today, they kind of showed that off. And so if I'm going to do this memory here, but I think they said they had $5.5 billion in cash, and they had you know, positive EBITDA, and they're free cash flow positive, and all those good things. Um, so a component of their IPO delay is a lot of health. Um, but... I kind of wish they were going public. That's that's my my core takeaway from this is I'm very disappointed at the lack of uh, an S one coming into my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have so many questions. Airbnb, where uh, General Catalyst is uh, is a, obviously a super proud early investor in Airbnb as well, and I think they are really well run company. And I think the the thing that also happened uh, was the promotion of Belinda Johnson to the COO role, which is part of kind of a really deep bench of people there, and she was uh, running the legal side of things, which is I think in tune with them 
trying to be the well-behaved and follow regulations and, and really be a partner with governments in doing this. So I think you know, this is the natural evolution of a company organization. Um, they also, as we talked about, they also just um, added Ken Chenault to be on their board. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he's a fascinating person who we also have a tie with now, who um, I think is really going to bring some extra perspective to a board as Brian builds it out and really tries to make a company that can endure for the long term. I feel like Airbnb is one of those interesting companies. It's kind of like an aside, right? I mean, you know, there are a lot of executive changes happening at the top and you know, but if you look at if you look at some of the startups, uh, we'll we'll leave Uber out, right? But if you look at a lot of if you look, I feel like if you look at a lot of startups, you you've walked into 2018 and you're kind of sitting there and saying like, well, you know, okay, we built this pretty good business. It's you know, we'll say it's like cash flow positive or not cash flow positive. We're kind of getting there and we're you know on track to to approach an S one. But like, holy crap! Like, what are we going to do with AI, right? Because like, I mean, clearly this is this is a, a very very big weak spot if we never even touched this before. And I I feel like I've talked to a couple of the guys over at Airbnb before where they're like, yeah, um, our search has to like. Be, get way way better and you know we'll have to like lean on ai to do something like that right but like there is like it's one of those things where there's where there's obvious like an obvious much much higher ceiling for a company like airbnb and yet again it still seems to be like totally fine right now well going back to the wag point about it becoming a platform and that kind of concept uh the information wrote the story that you referenced earlier about some tensions at the top if you will between the cfo and the ceo and i kind of like that story because i think it shows off the two sides of what a company can become one's kind of the dreamer side one's kind of the financial guy side and the the quotes are kind of funny so i'm going to paraphrase the story a little bit here but essentially they were talking about air travel and according to this story which i have not personally confirmed but the the gist was the ceo wanted to like by planes, and the CFO wanted to partner with a you know a existing provider of flights, and I think that kind of sets the tone for how to decide when to go public. Because if you are going to pursue incredibly capital intensive long term projects like building an airline, please don't do that. Um, it's going to take a long time before you can go public because you're going to take on a lot of cost and a lot of risk that, so that you can't really de-risk in your S one's uh, statements of potential failure. So when I read that, that's that that was so fascinating to me because it's this idea of like, oh yeah, like we'll buy planes. It's like yeah, buying planes is like your the first part of the problem. You still have to get the freaking gates at the airport and like all this other stuff, right? which is really competitive. <laughs> actually, getting gates is not easy around the nation, and that's why a lot of small airlines can't take off, and why United is still the airline you fly every other time. Sadly. Uh, sadly, sadly, yeah, yeah, but but no, I mean, I I think uh, you know you're you you make a good point. I'm sure like you've got a you've got a much better perspective here, right? Where it's like you know, is Airbnb at the com- at the reality check phase yet, or is it still at the phase where like it's actually got a robust enough business that it can kind of play around with ideas like this, like buying an airline or you know going after an Expedia for travel search or things like that, right? I, I think one of the most fascinating things like some of these companies do, especially Airbnb, is really looking out ten years and and thinking about what are all the dynamics going on with other big booking services? Do I need to provide experiences over time? Is it more than just a house? Is it actually like a, a family experience or is it more of a an overall set of things I see where I'm staying? Um, so I think the thing we get most fascinated by is people who are really looking out more than even two years ahead from where their current revenue is and thinking about how they're going to compete at a global scale. Well, they raised a roughly what was it, about a $1 billion Series F through 16 into 17, and then they raised a billion dollars in debt or at least a debt facility in 20. They must have to sell infinite money right now. So if, you, <laughs> if there's, I mean, I'm just going through their funny history, and it's just staggering to me. So if you have that much cash in the bank, if you're already EBITDA profitable and you don't have to go public, 
I mean, the question then becomes, how do you provide some sort of liquidity to extant shareholders and so forth? And I guess, you know, is there a tipping point at which point a company really should begin to work to provide liquidity if they're not going to pursue an IPO in the short term? Or can you essentially just say, wait? I mean, clearly it doesn't have Masa's cell phone number, so that would solve a lot of problems. Well, Masa <laughs> want to come in and, and buy half the company, right? I mean, like they, they don't do small deals and Airbnb has no use for that much capital. Or at least I can't, unless they do start an airline. But aside from that one facet, I don't see that being a possibility (laughs) whatsoever. Well, I do think the balance as a venture capital person, the the balance of secondary, you know, you can have it where the company is actually buying the shares. You can certainly have when a new investor comes in, uh, they're comfortable buying kind of investor shares, or in many cases, they're comfortable buying employee-owned shares. And the balance is always, you know, you certainly want people motivated and having alignment with long-term success and like making the stock super, super valuable. But on the flip side, if you got to buy a place in San Francisco, you need some your money or you're going to hop somewhere else where you can get money in the near term. So it's a very constant thing, both with the founders and the employees to give certainly enough that they they feel comfortable going, as we would say, going long on this company and like really trying to make something huge, but not like starving because they, they have all this stuff on paper that they can't do anything with. I've always wondered when, if you're a company like Airbnb and like, let's say you're cash flow positive, you're a startup that let's say you're cash flow positive or like you're actually you're, have positive EBITDA or something like that. Like, can't you just pay a dividend to your employees? <laughs> like, that is so antithetical to tech companies, though. I mean, yeah. think about Alphabet right now. Alphabet reported earnings like 48 minutes ago, and they pay no dividend. Now, they do rebuy some shares because they pay a lot in share-based comps. So they got to kind of balance out that ledger. So there are some cash costs that count as uh, investor return. But, I mean, Apple's dividend yield is like, what, 2%? I mean, it's, it's super low for their cash position. Tech companies don't want to pay dividends because it implies future growth is limited and they can't put that cash to better use. It's exactly. A, I mean, you it's have a, to- it's, 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 it's an image problem. You, well, you have to believe that a dollar reinvested in hiring engineers or sales teams or acquiring some company can make the stock go up more than just giving a dollar to the investor. And that is that is certainly the bet that they're all making, is that you can do more with that dollar one way than the other. But if you're sitting on $100 billion in cash and you pay no dividend and you're still increasing your cash position each quarter, I think that argument, not, not to you, but just to the companies, is lame. I, th- I think there's actually pushback all the time when you see people with those huge cash balances. <laughs> and they do one-time dividends. Apple obviously did a very big one-time dividend. That's true. I mean, Microsoft famously did, too. And uh, the other part of it is, as you know, stock buybacks. And I think that's a, uh, you know, you, again, you see this in the public companies. You don't see this so much in the private companies. But that's another way to make sure that you think a dollar can be more valuable by creating scarcity of this yes. uh, this equity piece. I was going to make a joke about Uber paying a dividend, but then I remembered how much money they lose. So I didn't. <laughs> Speaking of companies that don't lose money. But you get to make an Uber joke and I don't. Ah, fine. Well, whatever. my Uber joke worked. That's why I got to make it. Anyways, money. People that make money. <laughs> companies that make money. Uh, Amazon uh, made a lot of money. So quickly, uh, a rundown of the numbers. So, right, so for people that are listening to this, it's Thursday uh, here in the uh, – West Coast and every other big five company just dropped their earnings kind of at once. We're going to go over just two quickly, the highlights, if you will. Hold on, I'm my third cup of coffee. Go for it. All right, so Lindley is currently vibrating off of his chair onto the floor and having a seizure. Um, but aside from that small problem, uh, <laughs> Amazon reported, uh, according to Katie Roof's story, actually on TechCrunch.com, uh, sales of $60.5 billion, up 38% from the year before and ahead of expectations of 59.83. So they beat on revenue, and their stock was up 3% after hours. And critically, uh, AWS, their big cloud business, was $5.1 billion in revenue during the quarter, up from 3.5 the year ago. And and, drumroll please, they had net income of $1.9 billion. Amazon made a bunch of money. Yay, Amazon. It, you know, it's still kind of a surprise to me, but I love to see it when they don't put all that back into growth immediately and they do show a little bit of that profit uh, on their bottom line. So a solid, solid quarter from them. Shares are up. 
And I don't really have any complaints about this report. I feel like my favorite chart that goes with this company whenever they report earnings every single time is the chart that shows uh, Amazon, uh, AWS's contribution, profit contribution, and the net income for Amazon. <laughs> and uh, which one's bigger usually? Uh, I mean, no, no, no. It's like it's one of those things. It's like, oh my gosh, what like what story would be telling if Amazon didn't have AWS yeah, right now? You know, it's interesting. If you looked across a lot of the earnings, I know you'll cover some of them, but every single one of these companies highlights their their public cloud infrastructure service yes. these days. It came from Microsoft, from Google, comes out from Alibaba. It did, did it? And it over five hundred million in uh, cloud revenue from Alibaba in the preceding quarter. Certainly, the theme across all these companies. I wonder if the cloud's going to be a big deal after all. I think this cloud thing might work out Is it going to stick? Or is it the next Neopets? It's hard to tell. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's a short just on Amazon. And you know, I, I'm very impressed by their ability to be this consistent, and especially when they do so much at once. I mean, I, I'm a... I will admit to being a fan of the show Top Gear, just to pick one example of Amazon's broader empire, which Amazon bought and brought to its platform as a show called Grand Tour. It's not as good, but it's still fun. They spend oodles of money on this ridiculous automotive quote, quote, show, just part of what they're doing right now. Um, and Lindley made a joke about Alexa earlier on, but I mean, that's another just huge facet of their business. So I, I'm amazed that they can keep performing and executing at the level they are while maintaining such a broad focus. And by that, I mean kind of a lack of. Well, you but. mean, you mentioned uh, like cloud providers and things like that, right? And if you if you kind of look at Amazon historically, right, they've, they've made like the significant bets they've made have essentially been like platform plays, right? So they created like an online platform for retailers to sell their stuff or for everyone to buy stuff and actually get, you know, your, you know, your undershirts in, in 48 hours because reason X, Y, and Z, right? Or, or you know, if you, uh, I mean, I don't understand it, but if you really want to watch video games, like you can go to, you can go to, you can go to Twitch or, you know, if you want to, start a company and you need uh, things to run, like, you know, servers to run it on or GPUs for your AI or whatever, you use AWS. Or if you want to, instead of looking at your phone, ask your magic seller into your room. Sorry, I'm stealing a, a quote from Twitter. I think it's Ari Levy over at CNBC. Um, steal, you know, ask your magic cylinder in your room to also buy you your undershirts and have them sent in 48 hours. You can do that too, right? There's, and these there's, are like, there's and a these theme like, here. Yeah, well, no, it's like when you look at this, it's like these look like four like wildly different things and yet they're all owned by a single company. <laughs> Twitch does not figure very directly into the broader Amazon world. Or does it? I <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to mock esports because it's kind of its own category now. So we I, have just to, do, I just don't get it. But I know, like, I understand you're, why you're it's huge. You're 400 years old. Yeah, I know. I understand why it's huge. It's not for me, but once a ton once of you're married, it, you right? no longer get esports. Yeah. I think is the rule of thumb. Like that, you reach a, a point of maturity at which, boy, watching people play video games makes no more sense. There's um, other things you should probably be doing at that point. Like Although walking I, your dogs apparently <laughs> is what you do because you love them more than your children from your Airbnb. Ex well. <laughs> That would can you bring dogs to an Airbnb? I'm sorry, I'm off topic, but I'm kind of curious. <laughs> now I'm, that sure you it up. I'm sure it's part of the uh, things you can check as you're uh, looking <laughs> through them. And artificial intelligence may help us even more as we have. They'll already everything. know then that you have a dog. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, no, I'm actually curious. You know, so the investor in the room, right, who uh, has invested in Wag, a platform, and Airbnb, a platform. Um, when you look at Amazon, right, and you look at some of the things that they've come out with. I mean, obviously, AWS is much earlier in Amazon's life than something like Alexa or you know Twitch. Or I mean, if you want to like for whatever reason throw Whole Foods into that or something like that, right? Is it is it surprising to see like 
the scale for the scale at which the Alexa and the Echo has grown, is it surprising to see like an, a business like that agile come out of a company like Amazon when you're expecting something like that to come out of like the startup space or something along Amazon's those fantastic. And we, we all both admire and fear them in, in many ways as a startup. And I think that is, that is actually one of the biggest themes going on right now across uh, I'd say both consumer and enterprise focused investors. Uh, you, you have to know how, not just Amazon, but how Google, actually how all of these big players who had their earnings today, um, how they are using their platform or their their girth to uh, to create challenges to get into a market. Or on the flip side, every one of my startups uses the Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud in order to deliver something that they couldn't have delivered at the same scale before. So a lot of what we're doing now as investors is, is trying to figure out how to, to play these different opportunities and how to ride the, the waves between these giant companies as they're going forward. So it's really important to dive deep and understand their their strategy. To their credit in particular, to Amazon, like they are very well known for trying experiments that are pretty bold and then killing them pretty quickly, which is kind of what our startup world is like as well. Well, the Fire Phone came out. Flopped. Anyone remember that? <clears throat> I remember it because I remember how much hype it got. But you're more of an enterprise guy yourself, right? So when you talk to the companies you've invested in, which of the biggest tech companies are they most afraid of most often? Like Microsoft or is Alphabet? Or who, who kind of drives the fear? Um, I'd say it's a combination of them. That Again, it's fear and opportunity. I think uh, this will get a little nerdy for a minute. I came from Please. VMware. I was the CTO there. And that was really – it was software for data centers. And so if people aren't – putting applications in their own data centers, they're throwing them into Amazon Web Services or the Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure, uh, then that other business no longer exists. And you're not buying storage and you're not buying these traditional things. So a big part of what a, a modern investor will have to think about is, okay, let's let's buy that the world is moving to Amazon, which they clearly are. Um, how can we make it even easier for companies to move there? How do we help their applications run? How do we bring security? So a lot of it is how do you embrace the future and then help companies from where they are today to really leveraging it to their full amount. So there's still a lot of space for startups to build out like, you know, um, deployment services and security services that are built around the AWS world, even if Amazon will probably own all the bare metal. I, I like that. Yeah, and at a top level, like the entire world is getting digital. Like there's parts of it that aren't yet. You wouldn't know that sitting <laughs> here. But um, but yeah, at the macro level, everyone's moving things to be running bits and bytes, and we're just going to help them wherever they're going to run. Actually, I know the part of the world still isn't digital yet because you brought a piece of paper into the podcast room with you today. That is, a, <laughs> that is an analog sheet, sir. That is a piece of dead tree you brought. Legacy paper. Legacy <laughs> It's paper as a service. All right, Lindley, we have one last thing to get to today, and it's one of the earnings reports. So take us away. Um, so yeah, so you know uh, Apple, like the iPhone maker. I haven't right? actually heard of it. Anyways, um, so yeah, so they also reported. They also reported earnings today. It's been very busy. Um, so yeah, so they sold a lot of phones. They made a lot of money, but uh, this one was. Uh, I will say this, and I, I think you you also listened to a little bit bit of this. This was like I feel like one of the weirder reports that they've come out with where they've had to like uh, a couple times like double back and articulate exactly what was going on in terms of like guidance and things like that because this one was weird because there were only 13 weeks versus 14 weeks and then they had a new phone where the that was more expensive than previous but like you know most of those expectations are kind of baked into wall street analyst analyst estimates and then you know apple missed on iphone sales compared to wall street analyst estimates but at the same time the asp was a average selling price was much much higher anyways this was like a very very wonky report by apple um long story short the stock is up around like three percent so things look <laughs> fine uh, <laughs> I just, like, I love that. It's like 84 things, but up 3%. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, no, I mean, like, uh, I feel like app, this was a, this was a, it, it kind of summed up like the weirdness of this quarter, which was Apple was trying to 
I don't know. I feel I feel like Apple was trying to make this bet that there was like a third tier of iPhone customers that existed, but they just never touched, right? So it's like the super expensive guys, right? So we'll call like the guys that are men and women that bought the iPhone um, back was back when it was what eight hundred dollars, like the original one, the two G one, right? Oh uh, man, back when it was on Edge on AT. Yeah, yeah, like the super oh. super old one before it shifted over to like subsidies and stuff like that, right? So it's like okay, well clearly like, these people probably still exist. So let's see how high we can turn this dial and get them to pay for this. And that's what drove the ASP increase, is what you're saying. I mean, that's what we think, right? Yeah. I mean, theoretically, like if you sold the same amount of phones that you roughly the same amount of phones that you did last year. Um, you know, accounting for like the, you know, the week difference in the quarter and your price went up, like people are buying more expensive phones, right? So, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like Apple's just in this wonky place where it looked like for like a second it was going to literally hit like a trillion dollar company and now it didn't quite hit that like upgrade super cycle that the 6 started, right? When the, like, it was a bigger phone and like, yes, like the 10 is an incredible device and like it has like a, Alex is raising his hand. Can you call on me? Uh, what what is an upgrade supercycle? I've read that, and I'm just going to confess I have no idea what the hell it means. Well, it's like I mean, it, it's like a situation where you have a a ton of pent up consumer demand, just like kind of waiting for a thing to come out, right? So like the Galaxy Note exposed like this crazy demand for this huge freaking phone in your hand that no one thought like oh my gosh like why on earth would i have this like giant piece of glass that i carry around they were called phablets can't even fit in my pocket and then lo and behold when apple comes out with the six and the six plus way back in the day which is funny that we we call it way back in the day now um it like went nuclear right like it's like oh my god like finally there's a big phone from apple right so i mean i I trash talk the big android phones i'm like dear lord What's that? And then <laughs> Apple dropped one. I was like, I must have and it. I felt, I felt, well, I've smashed one, but yeah. You know, it lost amidst all these other earning calls. Every single, at least every single one I saw had a, a, a they took a one-time tax charge of some kind. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that as well, but this is, uh, this is going to be interesting to see it playing out as all these companies bring back lots and lots and lots of cash from uh, from overseas and what that turns into as well. Well, I mean, I mean I'm sure if you're, uh, as, as the investor in the room, Apple was making some comments about wanting to, Essentially, be uh, try to. I'll try to like make sure I articulated this correctly. Uh, be at a, uh, zero equivalent to like cash and debt. Like have it about equal, which essentially is like we're gonna like invest a crazy amount of money or not a crazy amount of money. I don't know into M and A and capital and returning capital to investors and things like that. And I'm sure like if I'm an investor, I'm like, oh yes, I like that buying more startups. <laughs> that uh, goes angle. back to the, to the dividend and, and share buyback program. But I mean, right now you can still borrow money at incredibly cheap rates. I mean, well, that's I, what Apple does, right? Exactly. That's my point. So I, I don't hate their debt strategy because it's so inexpensive for them to actually do that. Yeah, but that you raised what I wanted to ask you about is all this cash is coming back thanks to the the tax and jobs. Care Act, whatever the hell we'll it's just called. Just call it tax reform. Tax reform, yeah. uh, the tax thing. Um, tons of cash is coming home, right? And very active in the U.S. And you invest mostly in U.S. startups, I presume. Primarily. Primarily. So, do you think it's going to drive a wave of acquisitions? Uh, we certainly hope so, and think that you know, obviously we think it would be a good use of the cash to some of these companies that want to find new growth paths or or something to take their product forward. So that'll certainly be a good part of it. Apple's, you know, they're obviously all looking at ways to help their investors and, and other angles as well. But um, I vote for startup acquisitions. <laughs> well, well, on that note, uh, as our and uh, as our investor in the room is racing out the door to try and sell his companies to Apple, uh, we'll uh, wrap up there. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week.
Hey, if you're still here, we got one other thing to tell you, which is that Equity is going to go do a very live taping at Saster, kind of a big SaaS conference for SaaS nerds in the SaaS industry. And we're going to be hanging out there at 1130 at the event uh, at Studio B. So if you want to come throw pies, bring balloons, generally heckle Lindley or Katie, not me, uh, that would be a lot of fun. We have a cool guest going to be there. It's going to be a pretty much a good time all around. And uh, we're excited about it. So come out. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. Hey.